Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am joined, as almost always, by my wonderful co-hosts, Ms. Kirsten Korosek. Hey, Kirsten. Hello. And Mr. Alex Roy. Hey, Alex. Hey, I miss you both. <laughs> I I miss you both, too. It was really, really fun hanging out in L.A. Um, this week, or last week, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we... we have a lot to discuss a lot a lot happened but i think we have to start with something that only kirsten was uh privileged enough to actually experience in person uh for which i'm basically going to be jealous the uh the entire rest of my life because it looked like an absolutely magical experience kirsten please what was it like to be at the Cybertruck presentation live and in person. Like, have you recovered from that yet? I mean, now, yeah, I mean, barely recovered from it. I mean, now I can die because I've I've seen the Cybertruck reveal in person. It was a historic moment. I Just to, just to clarify, I mean, I, so I did an event with uh, Ryan Sumalan. Uh, uh, he also has a book out, which you should read, called The Slow Car Fast. Um, and we did a joint a, a joint. Pan, or like discussion and then and then live stream the reveal at a bar really close to the where the reveal happened and like just being there normally I watch these things like at home by myself like on a video like and and while tweeting and to just that to see so this lonely by the way I know, I know. <laughs> this is my so normally sad life but like seeing it with all these other people um and just like the emotional roller coaster of seeing that in person it was like pretty amazing for me I can't even imagine what it was like to actually have been there. Yeah, it was it was fascinating. And, you know, this is my view um, of things. I'm as we all know, you can take four people show them an event and they all take something else from it. But my view is this. I mean, I've been to not every single Tesla event, but I would say 80% of them since whatever 2011 or so um, or 2012. And this, for one, had much more energy just in general than the Model Y. Uh, same venue, um, a little bit of a different layout, but and maybe it was the props and the Blade Runner feel, you know, they had a few people had dressed up, not everyone, but there was definitely more kind of general giddiness coming up to it. Also, I think because it was, everyone was guessing what it was going to be and all these things. You know, going into this event, the the main crowd that if anyone was watching the live stream saw that was the main crowd, and then the media, which included uh, YouTube influencer types, were on the back right this back riser, so we were slightly elevated above the crowd. Um, a few people around me, uh, I heard comments like, you know, people talking out, you know, out loud, voicing what they had hoped. They were talking about towing capacity. They were hoping that it was going to be, they didn't use the words conventional truck, but something more palatable that people will buy. Definitely not what rolled up on, on stage. When it rolled up on stage, there were like audible gasps. There were definitely people who applauded and you can hear that in the live stream. But when you're hearing few people around, I heard, are you fucking kidding me? This is a joke, right? Are, you know, a lot of people thought this was a joke and that, suddenly something was going to change and it was going to be a different truck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was quite sure that when the window broke, that it was part of the joke yeah. and that Elon would take a sledgehammer out and then the panels would fall away to show the actual vehicle. Right. Which mm. would have been really brilliant and hilarious because all these people would have been 
cheering for a, a vehicle that didn't exist. That would have been amazing, but that did not happen. And I was like, nope, this is the vehicle. And what was fascinating to me was the group went from, and this just shows like sort of a, the power of, of the sort of cult of Elon and, and, and also just people wanting that this, like people wanting to be excited about something. I think there's a real desire in this world that we can't forget. People want to be excited about things and they want to love something almost as much as they want to hate something. And if it's either or, and they're torn and they're already a fan of Elon, they're going to go, even if they don't really like it, they're going to go eventually towards the love part. And so what I watched was initial shock and then some cheers. And then as he rolled out the specs, the different specs and the different, you know, all this stuff, it became more and more and more like uh, elevated in, in the positive until people basically like lost their minds when they revealed the price. Um, and then the event was over. Everyone went outside to get a ride in this thing. And uh, what I heard the most often, in fact, I heard it more than a dozen times in an hour, were people going, you know, it's growing on me. The more I look on it, it's it, look at it, it's growing on me. And that to me was most fascinating because they were talking themselves into this truck. And, um, and they were, of course, being supported by all the people around them. There were still few people who were like, this is terrible. Like, what the hell? But whatever. It's Elon. I'm fine. You know? But, uh, you know, people were talking themselves into this thing and, and loving it. They were totally fine with that, right? They were loving this whole crazy circus. Yeah. I mean, it, it, right. It, like the relationship that Elon has with his fans and the public, like there's so much trolling that happens um, and joking. And like, like it's a very sort of internet irony, like imbued situation. And so, like, I can totally see how in real life, when you're not behind a computer, like, and, and you just sort of have, you know, instantaneous emotional reactions to something. If you're not sure, like, it, you know, are we being trolled here? Is this real? Is this a joke? Like, which for so much of so much that happens around Tesla, like when it happens, you, it, it's impossible to know. Like, it, is this real? Is this is this a joke? Like, it must have been amazing to see that emotional coaster. I was sitting with two Ford executives watching the uh, the reveal live, and we all said, "Well, I'll speak for myself. What the fuck is that?" <laughs> uh, uh, several days earlier, I'd placed a deposit on a Ford Mach-E. Um, and then uh, later that night in my hotel room, after seeing the Cybertruck reveal, I placed a deposit on a Cybertruck too. Why? Really? Because it's 100 bucks and it doesn't matter? Yeah, it's 100 bucks doesn't matter. And I want it to be part of the cash windfall if this vehicle is never manufactured, um, helping them redo the, the, the Model S interior. Oh, okay. <sighs> so you think that they're going to be able to capture right. this? <laughs> Well, this is, it's a scam, right? I mean, clearly this truck. It's even a scam, if it, but I gave it money anyway. Hmm. Yeah, so of course. Well, here's the thing. The truck, I mean, let's be practical, is not going to hurt F-150 sales. But it definitely, it definitely is going to hurt sales of the Lamborghini SUV, the Aston Martin SUV, which, you know, showed, showed up at the, the LA DBX, Auto Show last yep. week. I mean, after seeing that and this, if you are in LA or Miami or the Middle East and you have, you know, screw you money, 
and you just want something uh, like a crazy factor SUV, like you're not buying the Aston Martin. Right. Um, you're not buying the Lamborghini either because all those things look and are really primitive compared to this thing. This is statement. Like it's it, it, in a way, it's kind of like what the Model X did when it came out. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it has wow factor, even if it sucked. And it, oh, for it sure, doesn't. yeah. And and that's the thing that was that was the like to both of your points, the whole trolling point. Are we trolling or in the statement piece? That's why I think people like completely just talk themselves into this vehicle. On the one hand, there's like all this; they have all this trust in Elon, like they have extreme trust in him which is they will take his word on whatever he says. And if he says this is, you know, going to be X, Y, or Z, in this case, Cybertruck, they're like, this is the next big thing. Huh. They just, they go all in. They do. That's true. I mean, I was, I, it, I was watching it unfold. I was watching normal, rational people be like that. Not only is that amazing, but I can see this like being on city streets. You know, so there's like a what I don't know potentially up to two hundred thousand deposits yeah. on this thing, and yet, yeah. like anecdotally, every single person who I've heard or seen like talk about why they put a deposit down, and, and I'm looking at an Inside EV's headline right now that basically says Marquis Brownlee, you know, put down a deposit just so he could review the Cybertruck. Like it seems like there's always going to be that element of that, and I mean that's why I found it interesting. Like I asked for it, how many, um, you know, we, we, we have an interview actually, um, that we're going to talk about here in a minute with, um, with someone from the Ford, um, Mach-E, you know, the team, the sort of electric vehicle team over at Ford, uh, specifically to talk about the Mustang Mach-E, you know, we asked about how many uh, reservations or deposits a company like Ford isn't going to put that out there. Um, but, but Tesla does. And, you know, you can, there's never going to be a full conversion that will never happen. And we even saw that with model three, actually, a lot of people who gave up their reservations was then replaced by people who just ended up ordering it because it took so long for it to come to market. It like didn't, unless you were, you know, dying to get your hands on that vehicle, you know, a lot of people just end up now ordering the model three, like, you know, I don't think the 400,000 you know, people who put down a reservation for the Model 3, not every single one bought one, right? right. So right. But I think that that is even more extreme in this case, right? This is a great example of, course. of a vehicle that it's cool to just be like, you put down a hundred bucks, you know, it's not, it's the lowest deposit Tesla's ever, ever had. You can tell your friends, see, you can, you control your friends. Now your friends won't know if you're actually going to buy one of these things or not. You can sort of bring that uh, emotional chaos from the event into your own life. So that, but, but really what we saw, so you're seeing that a little bit more. In fact, walking around the LA auto show floor, Alex, you didn't get to do that this year, but maybe you got a sneak peek. I don't know. I did. Um, okay. Well, there are very few crazy ass concepts out there. There were a few, but not like how I've seen in the past where it's like half the show floor is like stuff that will never drive. I, think this is, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And this is a good thing that I think Tesla has done for the industry is, yeah, for sure. For sure. Show, I, I would agree. Yeah, advanced designs that like you can actually let it be said that you know how many companies have released more boring SUVs. I mean, seriously, I'm sorry. I love Aston Martins and I love the company, but like that SUV is just so lazy. 
And it's a good looking. It's not bad looking. I think that what I think that it's not the future. It's like not even today. It's like yesterday. And the same thing goes for that Alfa Romeo, like Stelvio. Same thing goes for the Maserati, you know, SUV, like these, all these cookie cutters, like how many crossovers and fake SUVs can we possibly? Well, I think that that's a whole crossover issue. You know, I had a a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I was interviewing, uh, uh, Craig Jackson of the Barrett Jackson, you know, big, big car auction and stuff in Scottsdale. And, um, I was interviewing him for an article and he gave me, he, he was, we were talking about like crossovers and SUVs. And I, I asked him if he thought that, you know, if it was ever going to just go away. And he goes, you know, the interesting thing is, is I was like driving through the parking lot yesterday and I pointed to my friend and I were talking and I pointed to two identical crossovers. And the, the one thing that he's like, and what do you think separated the two? And I was like, I don't know. And he's like, $70,000. That was the difference. They looked identical, meaning that there are SUVs out there that look, that are incredibly high end, that look very similar if you see it in the same color yeah. as to more of an every man's SUV and crossover. I think people are hungry for, and which is probably why the Cybertruck has either, you know, a been polarizing, but also like people have resonated with it is because it's just literally, it's just different. People just want, they're sick, they're sick of vanilla and they're just going to go for it. Whether or not they ever buy it is another. I'm going to disagree with you. Um, I people, right? Like the the car industry, the car industry is a lot of things, but like, um, the idea that it is able to force things on people is just wrong. Um, and the reality is, is that people have been buying more and more and more and more crossovers all the time. The reality is, is that most people in the market do just want a cookie cutter vanilla car that gets them from point A to point B. So while I agree with Alex that you know the Cybertruck is cool and different and unique and therefore appealing to me and to Alex and to people like us. Um, people like us are a minority. Uh, and the reality is that most people do just want cro- a crossover version of any and everything. And so um, I think that, you know, sure, you know, a lot of these, these new crossovers, they look similar, they look cookie cutter, you can say what you want about them, but they're being created for a reason. And that reason is because people are buying them. You're not wrong in that generally people want a reliable vehicle and that the the vice and virtue signaling is with a select group of people who can can seem actually like the majority because they can be so loud about it. But I do get a sense of at least when it is we're talking about EVs now, like we can segment it out, that there is less patience for um boring cars right and they also don't want novelty cars they kind of want they kind of want you know like not too hot not too cold scenario they want something exciting they want something reliable they want something with a lot of miles on it even though they don't necessarily need those many miles and all of that has been created for better for worse because i think of like how tesla's approach things so like I didn't get a lot of positive reactions, for example, with the Mercedes EQC. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's fine car, but it's cost $67,000, which is priced under the I-Pace, which is priced under some of the other high-end competitors. But right now it's going to have like an EPA of around maybe 200 miles. Okay, but so electric vehicles are a tiny percentage of the market. And it makes sense that they're going to be more adventurous buyers because it's a new drivetrain. It's a new product segment and it's been pioneered by a new company. Right. So it makes sense that they would be in this more, 
you know, adventurous part of the market while, you know, still 95% of the market is still in this very... Yeah, I'm not, dis- I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying that in that market segment, I would say that that it shifts, it changes. Like people are, it's, it's sort of a, a, like a weird outlier. Um, and, you know, companies that I see making, uh, potentially helping with this crossover, not the actual car category, but like people shifting from this like uh, weird niche group to like starting to actually attract everydayers is the like the Ford Mustang Mach-E. Right. I see it's a possible. Also, by the way, the Toyota RAV4 Prime. Yep. Which is their first car. Thing. That's good looking. And by the way, 302 horsepower. 35 miles of pure EV. It's everyone, the RAV4, like the brand new RAV4 is, the dealerships can't keep them in stock. I know because I've been helping my sister try to buy one. Yeah. Um, they, it's a very popular, reliable vehicle, but all of a sudden it is powerful and fuel efficient. The RAV4s have always been terribly underpowered. Like you can't get off the line with them doing anything. You know, it's like try getting, merging onto an exit. It just isn't there. This unlocks both. And I could see people starting to warm up more to plugins because it's fuel efficient and it's reliable and it has power. It's sort of starting to hit, you know, while being just an, another crossover SUV type vehicle. So we talked to um, Mark Coughlin uh, or Kaufman, excuse me, of, uh, of Ford. He is, uh, was he head of electric vehicle marketing? Yes. So the global, so the sort of the globally, so um, for Ford. And so as part of the team Edison essentially uh, that put together the Ford Mustang Mach E. Yeah, and so we caught up with him actually in the back seat of uh, of that uh, very attractive, I think, um, blue Mustang Mach E GT that was at the LA Auto Show. Um, he was kind enough to uh, to take some time to record with us. All right, well, let's listen in. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. My name is Kirsten Korosek, and today I'm sitting actually inside a. <laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> that was great. A Ford Mustang Mach E, which is the first all electric vehicle um, under the new platform for Ford, because there has been technically an electric vehicle before, correct? A couple of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm sitting here with Mark Kaufman, who is the global director of electric vehicles at Ford. Is that right, Mark? That's correct. Thanks for having me today. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a poignant time to be talking to Mark because tonight is the Tesla Cybertruck event, which is going to be at the exact same location as the Ford event. Can, so, you, can you talk a lot at all about that? Like the decision, was that like just for fun or was it a space reason? No, if if you start thinking about, A, we, we wanted to make sure that to put the Mustang emblem on the front, we felt people driving the vehicle was going to be super important and going yeah. with the media ride. Yeah, yeah. So when you start saying, I want an international airport with where weather is going to be guaranteed to be better um, and have the ability to have secure driving, uh, you start getting into a pretty narrow list of facilities that can work. So that wasn't intended as a poke. Uh, yes, it ended up being pretty close to one of our competitors' backyards, though it really was more on just logistics and how do we get people who are... That was a global reveal for us, so we literally had people coming in from around the world. We hosted Chinese journalists, we hosted European journalists, so uh, that just is a pretty good logistic event for automakers. So so before we completely uh, shift gears here, uh, uh, you know, 
I think everybody who's coming out with a with an electric car these days, uh, one of the things they have to to wonder about and ask about is, you know, what are, what are the Tesla fans going? How are they going to react, right? And uh, because there is kind of this weird phenomenon where Tesla fans. You know, they're EV fans, but really they're they're Tesla fans and they like to bash EVs. And yet, um, we, and we were just discussing this briefly uh, uh, before we got into the car, uh, it seems like the response from Tesla fans to this car specifically, even compared to the I-Pace and the oh. e-tron and a bunch of other electric cars that are nominally competing with Tesla, has been really positive. Why do you think that is? Well, I think when, when you take a, a product that's known as an American icon in a muscle car, and when you then move it to be an electrified vehicle, um, some of the comments that I've read where people are acknowledging that this vehicle, I mean, for Ford to do this to Mustang, one of our cherished brands, and for 55 years, obviously powered by gasoline, and to put the brand on an electric vehicle, that for them really signified we're serious about electric vehicles, and we recognize that for, for even Mustang to go forward, that we are going to have multiple versions of that, that that work for customers. What I thought was most interesting when I was at the workshop was that this vehicle, the decision and how the whole entire vehicle was actually developed, designed, created, seemed like a complete departure from the way Ford has done things in the past, meaning a lot quicker for one. Um, not doing, I know that there was a decision not to do a compliance car. That was a, a moment in time where then it was like, let's go all in. But typically, what is the, what's the typical time period for designing and developing a car? Five to seven years, right? Is that like yeah, about... It's a, and, it's a little bit shorter than that, though. I think part of that, and we were a little bit fortunate. So when the vehicle started its life out as, as a, an electric SUV, but it wasn't leaning into Mustang at that point, uh, we were fortunate that overall the platform and some of the decisions made early. So platforms can be a really long lead item for us. Mm-hmm. Some of the work that was done, even when this vehicle was going to be a good SUV, but maybe not tapping into this iconic Mustang, um, some of that work we were able to to modify and work with. So it wasn't a throw everything out and start from scratch. So some of the platform, uh, this is our first fully dedicated battery electric vehicle platform at Ford. Uh, The prior versions we've had, we were trying to work within an existing platform to package the battery and motors. And that's really one of the things of how we're able to get 300 miles of range, Mm -hmm. right? Because you need need a dedicated platform. You've got to be really thoughtful in terms of the packaging of all those batteries uh, in order to get that that high range for the rear wheel drive. Well, in terms though of this, <laughs> every time, um, in terms of the uh, the speed though of iteration, I know that one of one of the folks over at T Medicine was just talking to me about um, the central screen and how the dial was created. And instead of you know going to a prototype team and creating this perfect. Um, you know, a pro, you know, perfect prototype, and then going to research. He the the story he told was that it was kind of like uh, hand done, kind of taped on, and it was very done very quickly. And that was one of the examples he gave as just sort of this sense of maybe not a sense of urgency, but like let's cut out a lot of the red tape and a lot of the bureaucracy and move this along and kind of get to it. Do you think that that? Was it was that just with the infotainment system, or was that happening throughout the development of the vehicle? Yeah, we we've had, and maybe to take a step back, so Jim Hackett as our CEO for a bit over two years now uh, is a really big fan of design thinking and human centered design. And a lot of people don't know what human centered design is, but the way I would explain it simply is and I've been with Ford for over 30 years, so I've been through a lot of product development cycles on vehicle development. We would normally wait 
until a couple very specific points before we get customer feedback. And the thought is, is customers really need to see more of what it looks like in the finished form to be able to give us good feedback. And design thinking is very different. It basically says you can learn from something from customers, even starting off with what's described as very rough, uh, low fidelity prototype sounds a snazzy way to say literally that the screen design that we're looking at, which is the new next generation sync design, started its life out with literally a paper printouts from a color printer that are, were 15 and a half inch and literally a K-cup. Oh, uh, like a Keurig. <laughs> yeah, a Keurig cup uh, glued onto that. And, and the, the whole design thinking methodology is a lot of feedback through the whole process. And, and at times, you know, when we do big formal clinics, we can invite as many as 300 people. Uh, this, even if we're getting feedback from 10 to 20 people, as you're proposing things of, you know, do you like more of this or more of this? And it's a little bit of, think of it as not of quantitative statistical sampling. It's more of warm, cold. Oh, I like this more. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me why you like that more. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more listening through the entire development process. So every Everything from to your earlier question about it wasn't just the screen. Uh, we've done the same thing on our website design for the new configurator tool that we rolled out for customers to reserve. Uh, and it starts out very basic with literally pieces of paper, cardboard boxes we've used to simulate things. And everyone has kind of formed the way of getting that quick input. And we're still doing those big formal research events to validate. But through this whole journey to get there, we've got a lot more rich customer feedback coming in for us. Um, so like who, who are the customers for this car? Right. Um, because it's, you know, you think of electric vehicles and you think of, of Mustangs certainly, and, and you tend to oftentimes maybe imagine, or, you know, you might imagine two very different customers, but on the other hand, uh, maybe there might be more similarities between those two markets than, than you might think also. But I'm, I'm just curious, how do you think about, about the, the kinds of customers for, for this vehicle? Ed, the one the one thing that we've seen, and this is true around the world, so I've had the chance to listen to customers in China, Germany, UK, US, and they, they definitely love new technology. And that's maybe the biggest shift in how we are thinking about this product. So normally, as I'm segmenting customers, everyone thinks of electric vehicles saying, oh, well, the, you know, they care so much about the environment that you would put that in your screening criteria. And we actually felt by doing that, you start limiting a little bit in how you're thinking about the car and what it needs to be. And we said, well, for this car to stand out and have people get this emotional connection to the car, what happens when when we don't look at that as a criteria? And what quickly bubbles up is it is about the technology, right? These these people that are buying EVs, uh, this next wave coming through, they're younger. Um, they tend to have a little bit higher income. A lot of them are in tech jobs and they just love new technology on vehicles. I think, I think that's really interesting because I mean, you know, one of the, one of the most fundamental insights uh, that, that created Tesla was just sort of realizing that like the, you know, you walk down the street in, in Palo Alto and you see, <laughs> and you see, uh, you know, Priuses, uh, uh, park next to Mercedes S classes and things like that. And I think that in retrospect, it seems so obvious that, uh, the tech sector has created a lot of wealthy people that want to buy cars that reflect, uh, the role that technology plays in their life. And certainly the rest of us now with as much technologies in our lives that, that that would be a really like focal point for, for how people think about cars. Yeah. And just to give you maybe a small example of how that influenced the design. So clearly a, a wedge shape is the most aerodynamic shape. So if you're saying it's, it's the, 
it's the range and the efficiency as the primary criteria. You might start making some trade-offs on how the design looks. Uh, so that front nose is going to be a little bit more sloped down. Uh, the roof pillars, and as the pillar comes down into the vehicle, you're going to push those more forward because that is going to be slightly more aerodynamic. But that's not Mustang. So, you know, the team's worked really hard to, you know, one of the things our designers talk about for Mustang is it has to have a shark nose. And that shark nose isn't the least it's not a block, so it's not unaerodynamic. But the team worked really hard to say, how do we get that long hood uh, and that shark nose on the front into the design, and work very carefully then with our aerodynamics team to get the most aero-efficient shape out of that. And that's how, when they look at the car and they describe it, they use the same descriptive words of sporty, aggressive, mm-hmm. you know, sleek, and they use the same words whether they're looking at the coupe, not knowing that it's a Mustang and a Ford, as this product. What's the coefficient drag of this that? Uh, we're, we're just under 0.3. Okay. Um, the interesting thing about sort of the customer, it's not just people who are um, maybe in tech jobs and tech-focused, but also design-focused, I think. And you can tell that I think some of the good decisions that were made in this vehicle is that there's a tech tray, for example, that you can do wireless charging. I mean, it is amazing to me how many new cars come out and there's no place to put a phone, and everyone's still relegated to the cup, which is not where you should be putting your phone. You know, it's like, it almost is encouraging you to pick it up, and it's like bouncing around. And that to me is, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if those types of decisions pay off for you. Um, Raising the speaker up um, on the side doors and making that sort of a prominent feature, like the fabric choices, things like that. I mean, was, was this, I guess, the first time that you Ford ended up creating a vehicle that was so design and tech centric. Cause I'm, I'm trying to think of a vehicle where I had the same response. Like, I don't know, Ed or Mark, I don't know. Who, so, can so you what, think of any other one? I mean, it's to me, it just seems way more de- design focused than and Kirsten. What I would say on this is this design is very purposeful, but I mentioned this more, I would say, um, interactive approach with customers. And the term I would almost use is co-creation. And literally, we went through clinics with customers and we gave them chances. And we had, there. literally, there was a table of things that any customer might, might have in the car. So imagine that a customer could come in and pick the things they're most likely to have in the car for them. And we literally had a configurable interior And when the customer gave us some feedback and said, more of this, less of this, we actually had enough different combinations of parts. So literally think about a Mr. Potato Head interior of a car. And as we tried different design concepts that we had with the designer, we were literally able to reconfigure the entire interior and get feedback on more of this, less of this. And we said, hold, please. And then... They would come back in a few minutes, and then they would see a completely different type of interior, and we, which we thought was what they were suggesting. And then we'd say, well, this is, you know, help us understand. This is what we thought you said. What do you think? And then either you'd get a, yes, I love that, or, oh, now that you've said that to me, maybe I don't like that idea so much, Could or it's somewhere in between, right? So it's it's the, the mama bear and papa bear, right, of saying, oh, a little too much. Could you dial that back mm-hmm. a little bit? And that co-creation process really helped to get the interior right. Mm-hmm. So um, with the – it sounds like like almost everything about this development process was, was pretty different than sort of the standard auto industry way of, of doing things. And, um, you know, because this was your first uh, all-electric, dedicated electric vehicle platform, um, 
did that give you more flexibility uh, to go from saying, you know, well, maybe at, at one point uh, we want this to be a front wheel drive, more economy type of car. But then, you know, as our thinking about the design has evolved, then all of a sudden, you know, uh, maybe maybe this is actually maybe what we want to make is a Mustang. And with an electric vehicle, you have flexibility in making those changes uh, once you have the platform, whereas once you make a platform for a Mustang, you know, you're not going to then switch that to a front wheel drive vehicle. It's a it's a it's a dedicated thing and, and it's just not as flexible. Yeah, I, w- I would say if you say what was the biggest enabler for some of the innovation on this car, uh, the brief to our team. So our, our team medicine and we work collectively with thousands of engineers around the company. Uh, quite honestly, the brief from our CEO was to to be disruptive. Do you think that that it was successful enough that you will apply what your approach that you took on this vehicle to the F-150 program, for example, or something like that? I mean, do you see, yeah, just applying the whole approach, the whole team medicine approach, the sort of disruptive, quicker, um, the way you were dealing with customers, like all of that, are you going to apply it to the rest of the company? Um, we've are, we are, I'm already seeing lots of examples of that to date. And, and it, the thing that's interesting about this is even though this is a battery electric vehicle, I would say the bigger innovations on this car are really more about technology. So yes, and we know that the, the battery electric vehicle and the people buying those are going to be early adopters, but absolutely, can I, do I expect this, the innovation on this car? Um, as you move up that early adopter curve, do we see this cascading across other products? Because, you know, our new next generation sync system doesn't have to be on a battery electric vehicle, we know the customers who buy this car will likely appreciate the fact that it's adaptive. So these tiles on the bottom, uh, this isn't a hard-coded system in the sense that your screen can keep adapting to how you use it. So if you use certain functions more, you're going to see these bottom three tiles always pick those up, and you're going to have some some functionality on the bottom of the screen so you can even directly enter that without having to leave and go from a home screen to an entertainment screen to a, a navigation screen. So, and and just as you change this design process, right? Like one, you know, definitely like car companies, you can get stuck in sort of the established way of doing things, right? And that has been a challenge for a lot of car companies in, in embracing new technology and new approaches. But like a lot of times too, those old ways of doing things are there, you know, to ensure that cars are as reliable and durable um, as they need to be for, for customers. So I just wonder if you have any thoughts um, about how you maintain sort of those good things about traditional automotive development while still sort of evolving and moving and trying new things and, and trying to be more disruptive. Great, great way to phrase that, Ed. And I would say when, when a car, and I'll try to take this at a very high level, if a company is trying to do the minimum amount to meet compliance standards, CO2 requirements in Europe, ZEV standards in the U.S., what you want to do, if, if that's your mission, just just say, we just want to get over the line to meet regulatory requirements, your engineering team will focus on spending the least amount of money as possible. So if you keep following that line of thought, so, okay, I'm spending the least amount of money as possible, what does that mean? Well, all the parts on the car that will work you're going to try to use as many shelf components as you can to spend the least amount of money. And that's going to lead you down a path to say, well, my battery electric vehicle, other than the batteries and the motors for propulsion, are going to start looking and feeling a bit like a conventional car because you're using shelf components to minimize the spending. So when you switch the gears and say, we want to make this car something that customers will emotionally connect to, that's going to stand out and be completely different. In a way, that gives you permission. And again, there's not an unlimited budget because you still, as a business, right, you're still trying to box. But that does give you the ability to challenge 
areas where you're spending money and making it unique. And we've always, within our, our EV team at Ford, we've really leaned into, we've got to take, by taking our iconic nameplates, we've got to lean into why does someone love a Mustang, right? Why does someone love an F-Series truck? And how can we leverage electrification and do more and make that product even better for what customers love about it? And how can we leverage the fact that there is no engine, right? You have completely different packaging. You don't have transmission housings, right, with where the transmission would sit. And how can we actually leverage that for areas that the customers find the most useful? Two questions before we have to wrap it up. Uh, just a, could you quickly describe, I noticed that there's a DMS system, a driver monitoring system. So what is that going to be used for? Is Do you have that in any other vehicle right now? Uh, so that is uh, our, our next round of driver assist technology coming into the car. So very quick to pick that up. That uh, we do have a uh, what Kirsten's describing is a driver monitoring system that's sitting on top of the steering column. That's probably about twenty twenty five millimeters tall. So just under. It an inch almost tall. looks like in in other other vehicles where you might see the gear like where it might be reflected up for reverse drive park. You know, it, it it's very subtle. It yeah. doesn't look like. Uh, driver monitoring Yeah, we would say system. it's actually well integrated into the design. You still have clear access to the cluster. And yes, we are going to have different levels of driver assist technology on that. Uh, Ford, and we always feel that keeping eyes forward on the road are important. Um, we've been around a long time. We really care about the safety of our customers. So uh, the driver assist technology, which for us is important to make sure that the customers are paying attention and looking. So that driver monitoring systems to do exactly that. It's also the reason why Kirsten, you're looking at, we do have the basic information on range, speed, uh, and even the Prindle, as we describe mm-hmm. it, for the uh, for the gear select, also available without having to look at the center screen. Mm-hmm. You know, we generally want to keep the customers focused on the road, so that critical information, uh, battery charge as well, right, that most customers will want to see uh, are easy to see in a traditional cluster location, in addition to having that large 15-and-a-half screen in the center. Would you ever do a head-up display then as well, or is there is that even necessary? You know, there, I think there's a good debate in the industry right now. So one of the challenges with heads-up display is the amount of space that they take up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, there's a little bit of cost that comes with heads-up sure. display as well. So, you know, we're definitely looking at different technologies in terms of how are we leveraging the space in the instrument panel and what's the best use of that space for the customer. And then this driver, th- this next um, generation of driver assistance technology. So this DMS is, a, I assume, there's a camera in here that will, watch gaze is that and then would this be uh, would this allow for hands-free driving yeah, the, the intent is the, the, there's different levels of driver assist technology coming that uh, on highway will allow for hands-free driving. Uh, and the other great capability in this car is with over-the-air updates mm-hmm. and also with modems, um, clearly having the ability for a customer to upgrade their car through the ownership cycle mm-hmm. with latest and greatest technology of software. So getting the car hardware enabled for the future is important. Uh, but then also, you know, we do have capabilities in working with our customers to give them more, more capability as the car as the car ages. Okay, so last question is about the configurator. Um, it's been live since Friday, or Sunday night, right? So we're a little less than a week. So what what is it that 
are people configuring the cars already? I mean, I imagine that they are, right? Yep. So, so, so in that, I think be, beyond just a uh, say, we would normally say a normal build and price model is we do have a reservation system that we're running for this. So under the category of challenge convention and think differently, uh, we're running a few different pilots with regard to how uh, we're thinking about the launch of this vehicle. So we really wanted a model where this was customer pull. So in a normal product launch, we might allocate to dealers based on historical sales performance how many units they're going to get. And in this launch, we actually are letting the reservations guide where all that production is going, especially in the early time period. So we are encouraging everyone to go to that website if they're if they're interested in the product. So that's just on Ford.com um, and, and reserve the unit. That's a refundable amount. Uh, the reason we've got $500 against that is we want serious interest. So if I have a 12 or 13-year-old enthusiast Enthusiast, uh, that's very excited about the new Mustang Mach-E, but maybe that uh, the monthly payment for that doesn't fit into his allowance and he doesn't have a driver's license yet. Uh, we're using that, that deposit really just to make sure this is more serious intent. Uh, but customers are able to order one of 12 configurations, not counting color. Uh, and again, those reservations, we are not, we have uh, 2,100 EV certified dealers in the U.S. All those dealers will have test drive units and demo units for customers to drive, but they are not going to have dealer stock. Again, different model. So all of that early production is going to people who are reserving. And we thought that was a really fair way, especially as we have that $7,500 federal incentive to say that, you know, we want people to reserve and we want to handle their orders in, in priority. Uh, now, you can still go to, a, by the way, you can still go to a dealer. If customers love going to the dealer, they're still able to go to a dealer. They're even able to reserve at the dealer. And the dealer offline feeds into the same online system. So whether you go to the dealer or you do it online, you know, the timestamp is the timestamp and they all feed into the same system. And uh, if people put down a reservation, uh, when can they expect to have a Mach-E in the driveway? Yep. So uh, vehicles should be on the ground and in customer's hand by late 2020. Great. How many reservations do you have? I uh, haven't haven't announced the numbers externally. I can say uh, the first the first editions are already starting to uh, run down. So if anyone listening has a huge interest in the first edition, I would strongly encourage them to get the reservation in now because I don't think that vehicle is going to be available in our configurator much longer. Great. Uh, well, Mark, thanks so much for uh, for helping us understand this uh, very cool car, and uh, congrats on the launch. Ed and Kirsten, thanks for having me here. Pleasure to have you on the stand. Thank you. Well, that was really cool, but you know something, um, let me say this, and I love my friends at Ford. However, the Ford Mach-E pre-order page um, highlights starkly, and not totally in a good way, the difference between how Tesla packages options and how everyone else does. Because if you want, all I want is a Mach-E with a maximum range and no options, just maximum range, that's it. And if you go there, they have a bunch of different versions of it, but... Uh, it's not entirely clear to me, like, which one is the right one for me. And, you know, if you go to Tesla's order page, there's basically three options. There's color, exterior color, interior, autopilot, yes, no, maybe wheel size. And, you know, a lot of people buying EVs, they don't are looking for, they just wanted the battery size and maybe color. And that, and Tesla's really nailed that. And the Mach-E packages, they're, they're packaged the way every Ford and every other OEM has been packaged since the end of time. I think this could use some improvement. It's interesting that you mentioned that because actually one of the things that, that Ed and I heard while we were on the show floor talking to the people at Ford was that, that they, they were even pointed to how people order the car as a new way 
it's unlike what they've done before. So maybe they haven't gotten it. Not new enough. Well, maybe they'll maybe they'll learn from the experience, right? I mean, that's always part of this. The one that really gets me, because you know, I've used Ford Copilot 360 a lot. Um, I also crashed a Ford with Copilot 360, um, and I'm going to take responsibility for that because it's driver assistance, and I overestimated what it did, what it could do. Um, if you go to the, the Ford Maki uh, configuration page, it says you know Copilot 360 2.0 plus Copilot 360. Like it's just not. ADAS terminology, as Kelly Funkhauser at Consumer Reports pointed out, um, has to improve. And autopilot is both an, a confusing and an exaggeration to the average person, but they sell a lot of it. Uh, well, it's all it's standard and because people think it does. They know what it means, or at least they think they know what it means. Nobody knows what any other ADAS brand name means. The Mach-E uh, is going to have the latest generation of this. They need to... The, the the way they package it and market it needs to be as good as the car. And I'm very confident about that. I mean, I, I do think there's a, a spectrum between, right, like specificity and, and vagueness and that like like simple but vague is is good branding but bad communication, right? And we've had whole discussions about what happens when people don't really understand when when, when you oversell or, or you're vague about what a system's capabilities are. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know that anybody's doing it. I don't think that Tesla's necessarily doing it right. Even though it is successful, I think it's it's at the expense of risk. So anyway, I think everyone has has work to do to improve how they communicate about particularly like driver assistance systems. So anyway, well, um, this has been uh, really cool. Um, you know, thanks to Ford for for uh, letting us record in the back of the Mach E. It was great to uh, get a, a closer look at that car. Um, we have a lot to discuss. Um, we got some great stuff coming up. Um, you know, from folks that we've met. In uh, in LA. Before we sign off, a couple things. If you would like to join our mailing list, which is going to start becoming very important in the near future, you should go to atonicast.com and join our mailing list. Uh, and uh, Ed, where can we find you on the internet? What's your Twitter? Uh, well, r- real quick, before uh, we, we discuss that, the mailing list is very important because we're actually about to do our first ever listener survey. Um, we don't ask a lot from our listeners here at, uh, at the Atonicast. Um, but we want to sort of professionalize. And in order to do that, we need information from you. Um, so keep an eye out for our, our listener survey. Um, and you know, when that does come out, if you could just take a few minutes to fill it out and, and just give us as much data as you're comfortable sharing, um, which again, will be purely private and would just help us develop our business and, and make this product better for you. Um, please do it because uh, if you enjoy it, you know you probably know it can still be better. So um, help us help us make it better. Well, and I would add that not only do we never ask our listener audience to do anything for us, that the, usually when we interact, we're like holding events in which you can come and like drink beer. So it's like a small little like yes. sprinkling you know, of guilt. Hit there. us back. You owe us. As well, as you owe us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the meantime, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Twittermeyer, Kirsten. Kirsten at Kirsten Korosek. All right. All right. My, and I'm Alex Roy 144 on all platforms. And you should follow my other podcast on Twitter at No Parking. Oh. Yeah. No Parking Pod. It's a good, no, it's a good one. It's a good one. It is a good, I actually listen to it a lot and it's good. The website, noparkingpodcast.com. Think of it as an addendum or adjunct to a Tonicast. All right. And with that. <laughs> We'll see you next time on another episode of the Atonicast.